Welcome to the first episode of the Equity Insights Program, brought to you by Equity Economics and Development Partners. We are a leading economic policy firm responding to challenges across domestic and international portfolios. We provide analysis on a range of complex policy areas in the pursuit of a better today and tomorrow for people everywhere. My name is Rachel Mason Nunn and I'll be your host. I am the Manager of International Development here at Equity and have a passion for supporting the NGO sector to innovate and transform in response to the many challenges and opportunities they face. And that's exactly the topic of today's episode. Between June and October of this year, we have worked with a group of NGOs including Save the Children Australia, Child Fund Australia and New Zealand, Care International, Plan Australia and CBM, as well as the Australian Council for International Development. To explore whether NGOs can reduce their operational costs by sharing services such as office costs, human resources, project safeguarding and more. Without the support of the NGOs and ACFID, this research wouldn't have been possible. We now know, after completing the research, that NGOs can in fact benefit both financially and non-financially from a shared services approach. In this episode, you'll hear from the Director of Equity Economics, Amanda Robbins, and the Deputy CEO of Save the Children Australia, Matt Tinkler. Amanda, Matt and I discuss why we undertook the research, the findings and recommendations of the analysis, and where we go from here. You can find a link to the full report in the show notes, as well as a link to our website to learn more about our work. We'll continue to bring you episodes on our projects and our clients, so make sure you hit subscribe if you'd like to keep hearing insightful, evidence-based analysis. We've also included links in the show notes to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages so you can join the conversation. Enjoy the episode of the Equity Insights Programme. Matt, I'll start with you. What was the challenge that we were trying to solve by undertaking this research? Yeah, so the challenge we're trying to solve is one of the business model of running an INGO. And that that model is coming under significant pressure at the moment um, for a range of reasons. Uh, There's a sort of flat line or declining base in traditional forms of development funding. Donors are trying to localise their response more. There's an increasing compliance burden on on NGO headquarters to meet donor expectations and donors are trying to squeeze us to do that all with less overhead margin if you like. So the cost of running an INGO business and delivering programs overseas is is increasing and essentially what INGOs have to do to survive is subsidise the cost of program delivery that donors aren't willing to pay and we do that by raising money from the general public but that's under pressure as well because it's a very, uh, it's a full market in, in Australia. Uh, there's not a lot of space to differentiate yourself. The return on investment from public fundraising is declining year on year. You add something like COVID or bushfires in Australia to that mix and that puts even further pressure on your fundraising capability in, in the Australian market. And building on that, do you see many efforts across the sector to innovate the INGO business model? Uh, not enough, I would say. Um, I think people need to be a bit braver in how they 
try and create impact in developing countries. Uh, I think there's a lot of talk around wanting to innovate and try new business models, but I don't see many examples of that on the ground. And I think it's really hard. It's it's hard to stand up a different business model, a fee-for-service model, a mixed-for-profit or and for-purpose model um, and uh, service your sort of business-usual activities in the traditional way at the same time. Um, we're certainly grappled with that at Save the Children. I think we have... We've got a lot of different business models going at the moment, but we've also grown our traditional uh, institutionally funded portfolio at the same time. So that puts a lot of pressure on our management team because they're trying to both perfect that business as usual and do something new and challenging and interesting all at the same time. Right. That's interesting. And do you feel a pressure from donors to adopt more innovative business models like a shared services approach? Yeah, one of the reasons that I was keen to pursue this sort of research is I remember uh, at a meeting with a very senior DFAT um, public servant and I complained that they are squeezing us on our ICR and increasing compliance costs and his response to me was, well, why are you all running child safeguarding units in the Pacific, for example? Why aren't you doing more to share back office services? And uh, I'd been keen to and had been pushing DFAT, for example, as one donor to do better on its its margins, its ICR, and follow some other donors who pay more, like USAID or the Green Climate Fund. But their response was, well, you've got to make sure you're efficient as well. And, and I don't think NGOs are that efficient. We're all doing very similar th- things in a very similar small geographic footprint. Um, and we tried a few things like sharing office space in PNG. Uh, we'd offered at times to provide services to other NGOs without much take-up. So I was hoping that by showing that there are significant efficiencies to be gained by combining forces in in shared services that other NGOs might um, increase their appetite to do it going forward. Okay, so that set the scene really well for the research. So Amanda, if I can go to you now, when we undertook the cost-benefit analysis for shared services, what did we find out? So it revealed a range of things and one of which is that the international NGO sector is already really interested in pursuing innovative models and our interest was in helping them to take that that interest to another level by trying to put some numbers around what, what this could look like and to take it to the next step of trying to quantify some of the potential costs and benefits of pursuing shared services models. So What we actually undertook was working with some uh, major INGOs in Australia and New Zealand. We uh, looked at their operating costs as they stand now. So we got a baseline of what kind of costs they're incurring for all their operational and back office um, program costs. And we tried to explore, well, what are some of the ways that that we could support uh, collaboration and support both value for money because ultimately, as Matthews mentioned, they there is an interest in dealing with the fiscal pressures. Uh, so we want to achieve some cost savings through shared services models, but also the, the ultimate goal is to also improve effectiveness and deliver impact. And by saving money, um, you, you're actually hopefully um, being able to reinvest more in the actual development outcomes you want, but also hopefully improving how you work and, and how you deliver um, the development outcomes that we know um, the NGO sector is committed to. So by looking at their existing operational costs, we we then worked through um, a, a range of scenarios that the uh, NGOs had told us they were interested in. Matthew's already mentioned the um, 
the interest that DFAT had said about why aren't you sharing services in child protection. And so we were really interested to see that that was something that the NGO sector was interested in looking at, how could they collaborate on child protection. And let's take that one as an example. When we looked at that, um, because child protection is actually increasingly costly in terms of the compliance costs, um, the requirements that are placed on NGOs, um, which, of course, they're all very committed to meeting, but you still, in a tight fiscal environment, need to find a way to manage those costs. Uh, and what we found is that by improving a shared, uh, adopting a shared services model, um, collaborating, possibly doing shared training, a, a more uniform way of conducting investigations into child protect, protection and safeguarding, we found that you could actually deliver some significant returns. And the cost-benefit analysis puts a, a result of for every dollar you spend, you could get up to a $5 return on that investment. We should, when we talk about cost-benefit analysis, I should really say these are scenarios that we've modelled and the report includes four um, scenarios that we think are really worth considering um, across the sector. But they do try and put uh, quantify something that obviously is more complex than simply saying we're going to collaborate and share services. In fact, there will be challenges that mean some of these costs may not be, uh, savings may not be realised, but we've tried to be conservative in our analysis to show that over a 10-year timeframe, you can really achieve um, some significant savings and potentially improve development outcomes. So just staying on those scenarios now, the scenario that returned the highest cost-benefit ratio was sharing financial and human resource services. So can you go into that a bit further? Yeah, so this is an interesting one because um, what we found when we looked at the operating costs of uh, the NGOs participating in the study was that over a quarter of their operating costs are actually uh, incurred in delivering the financial services and the human resource management um, components of their programs. So it's a huge uh, imposition on their budget. And so consequently, it means that it's also an area that you could potentially find savings through a shared services model. The other reason it, it bodes well for a shared services model is that all NGOs tend to do something similar. So you all have a payroll and you all have a human resource team that's doing recruitment. So there's some consistency and similarity in the actual activities that each NGO is doing, which bodes well and supports the idea of a shared services model where you could do it as a collaborative team. So when we looked at this scenario, it did actually generate over the 10-year timeframe up to about $5.5 million in savings across the sector over 10 years. Now, the thing to remember with that is it isn't that easy to transition to a single payroll system across multiple NGOs. So whilst we think this one does generate a significant cost benefit um, and really the investment does deliver a return, um, there are challenges in consolidating and having a uniform financial services and HR team. But we definitely think it's one that's worth exploring across the sector. We don't necessarily think it's the one you might start with. So when NGOs are thinking about, well, how do I explore shared services model models, um, there's probably a few scenarios we'd recommend piloting um, and working towards something that could really deliver some significant cost savings like financial services um, collaboration. We'll get into those recommendations in just a moment. But Matt, as someone who's at the forefront of running an NGO, what was your reaction to those findings? I think, in a sense, the findings codified or, or quantified what we suspected, our instincts a little bit, that uh, there should be efficiencies and economies of scale and combining forces on on some of those things. Um, I think it, it it surprised me a little bit, the, the scale of the, the gains that you could achieve in some of those areas, like uh, child safeguarding or financial uh, management, human resources. But uh, at the end of the day, 
it's it's pretty expensive to maintain these levels of support in some of the places where we work. So take PNG, for example, which is the sort of div- the biggest sphere of influence for Australian-based INGOs. It's a really hard environment to operate into, complicated, insecure. It's expensive to locate staff there if they're not national staff. Um, it's highly competitive with resource and financial services industries, those kind of things. So it's quite expensive to maintain a highly capable workforce in a place like that. So you should be able to realise these kind of uh, efficiencies at scale and savings if you combine forces, I think. I think a concern a lot of NGOs will share regards the high cost of transitioning to shared services. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, I think the sector's got to play a bit of a long game on some of these things. Um, Yep, it might take a bit of time to transition and realise the savings, but I think there's real opportunity for NGOs to offer a specialised service. So, you know, talking about child protection, there's agencies that specialise in child protection and child safeguarding as a thematic area of programming and expertise, say to Children's One. Other agencies specialise in things like gender. Um, You you could have agencies saying we are going to take on the collective effort in this particular area and offer that as a service for others in the region. And I think uh, everyone, therefore, sort of, gets a piece of the pie in a sense that they provide a a service to others and generate some income from that potentially, but they reduce their cost and investment in in other areas at the same time. So I think there's real scope to do that. And of course, that's one of the recommendations of the report that INGOs start to pilot shared service opportunities and approaches. So Amanda, could you talk about some of the recommendations that the report contains for INGOs and donors? Yes. So one of the recommendations is that INGOs actually do try when they're when they're conducting or developing new programs and rolling out new supports in the region that they do look at a shared services model and many are uh, we're just hoping that they'll try and formalize that try and quantify some of the gains that could be made from this model um, and start to pilot over the next few years some of the scenarios we think that a simple one to start with that um, many INGOs have tried and that this in the in the middle of the Uh, COVID-19 pandemic, there's huge scope and opportunities to look at co-locating offices. Um, We know that everybody's facing challenges around office space at the moment and working remotely. So we think that this is an area that you could start for, INGOs could start to really collaborate a little more. The interest is also there. So related to that is also um, the need for the sector to start to work together a little bit more. So there is also a recommendation around um, an INGO working group that can help interested INGOs actually connect uh, and start to collaborate on shared services opportunities, as simple as co-location of offices, but then working towards and working through some of the challenges for in the kind of regulatory ecosystem that would support shared services in the longer term. And Matt, on the recommendations for donors, if you were in the position of a donor right now, where would you be taking these recommendations forward? They've got to incentivise this and they've got to incentivise it in the right way. So um, the worst case scenario would be for a donor to say, well, you guys are all too expensive. We're going to take you know more uh, overhead out of what we provide you. But I don't think that's where the report leads. But the best case scenario is donors say there's real efficiencies to be gained here. The, the trade-off is to create more impact, to free up funds to, to allow that. And we're going to put long-term incentives in there to get INGOs to collaborate and share services in particular areas. So, you know, we talked a little bit about examples in the monitoring evaluation space in Timor-Leste. You could 
you could do that at scale. You could pick other thematic areas like child protection, child safeguarding, and say, why don't we try and pool resources on that in a place like PNG, where all the agencies are operating at a fairly significant scale? Um, those kind of things. So I, I think the balls in DFAT and other donors' courts there a little bit. Um, the holy grail, from a donor perspective, is getting more harmonisation to around their their own compliance regimes. Um, as you grow your accounts as an NGO, and so you're certainly trying to do this with donors like Global Partnership for Education and Green Climate Fund and Education Cannot Wait and New Zealand's MFAT, they'll have their own compliance requirements and they're close but not close enough that you can rely on one regime for the other, if you like. So more harmonisation is where we'd ultimately like to see donors go as well. So just to circle back to Amanda's earlier point now, the real end goal of a shared services approach is to improve development effectiveness and to have a greater impact in our work in the development sector. So Matt, can you illustrate that for us in practice? What does the additional funds saved through shared services mean for an organisation like Save the Children? Uh, well, it's it's huge. It's the end game, right? So if we can um, reduce our overhead costs in a place like PNG, uh, instead of using the unrestricted income we raise from the general public to subsidise the cost of program delivery, we can allocate that income for pure impact. So we can say there's an unmet need in PNG in response to COVID for you know PPE or health system preparedness or continuity of access to education or child protection programming and allocate discretionary funds towards that and create an impact rather than having to sort of allocate those discretionary funds, which in effect become non-discretionary because you have to subsidise to to another donor's intent to their intended impact. Um, that's, that's the ultimate end game for us. And I think there's real opportunity in this kind of work. The, there's always a challenge between the global and the local that NGOs have often a global affiliate and they're, they're trying to adhere to that system, for example, a HR system or an IT system or a finance system. But if you allow different NGOs to specialise and offer a service in a particular area, I think you can have a bit of both. You can say this is a good HR system, for example, that we can leverage for other agencies, but we might buy in the IT system or the, the finance system or the child safeguarding system. What the research does reveal is that there is a tremendous commitment across the INGO sector to value for money and delivering development impacts and their willingness to both support and be involved and share um, sensitive confidential operational budgeting data um, to make sure that this research happens reveals their interest and commitment to innovating and driving their model forward. So I think that there is real opportunities here. It will require the support of donors uh, in part because um, a lot of the compliance costs and regulatory processes that need to be aligned in order for shared services to work really require their involvement, but also because uh, there are significant transitional costs involved in some of the scenarios. So donors do need to play a role. Um, but what I would say to, to them is that they, the interests that INGOs are pursuing here are very much aligned with their interests. It's not just about wanting to save money um, through monitoring and evaluation, shared hubs and shared services, but actually in adopting these shared services models, the goal is actually that we'll actually also strengthen the evaluation, which is, again, in DFAT and other donors' interests. So it isn't purely about savings, but we have found that it will, uh, it can potentially achieve significant savings. But what we also think it will achieve is, is that de development impact that 
um, everyone has uh, is committed to. Maybe if I can just add one thing, Rachel, our experience is, you know, from little things, big things grow to quote mm-hmm. Paul Kelly or Vincent Langari. Um, you, for example, in Melbourne, we shared office space with Oak Tree and it started out just a pure sort of shared tenancy, but um, it made sense then to share IT services and support and some finance services and support to Oak Tree. So we started sharing services genuinely, but then it led to conversations around strategy and joint campaigning and other opportunities to pursue more impact-related work together. So, you know, that's it's a starting point and I think organisations just need to take the plunge and, and we can make it work. But I think there is huge scope for the sector to be strengthened through these kind of models. We know that there's some highly successful and really effective larger NGOs. There's also a plethora and like a multitude of small NGOs that would really benefit um, from collaboration. Um, That's both in terms of cost savings, but also in just strengthening uh, capabilities. And it also means that you can free up um, some really um, boutique NGOs that have really high capabilities to focus on the things they do best, whether it's in disabilities or gender um, or any number of fields, uh, without necessarily having to have the huge overheads and back office capabilities that isn't necessarily their comparative advantage. So I think, again, this this model presents an opportunity for the sector to strengthen and develop as well. Couldn't agree more. Thanks, Amanda and Matt. That was the first episode of the Equity Insights program brought to you by Equity Economics and Development Partners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. I hope you enjoyed the episode and we look forward to bringing you another one soon.